This podcast is brought to you by The Province. Listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Here are your hosts, Paul Chapman and E. Spencer Kite. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Keyboard Kimura podcast here on Province Sports Radio. I am your host, E. Spencer Kite, joined again this week, as promised last week, by my punch drunk predictions partner in crime, Patrick Sticklinski, the man who is now trailing in the punch drunk predictions. After UFC Fight Night, Cowboy vs. Cowboy. How's that feel, Patty? Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, it's, uh, it's, one, it's one event. I'll let you enjoy it for now. Um, we're going to get right back to it this weekend. And, uh, you know, I'll get back on the scoreboard. It hurts a little bit right now, but uh, I'm coming back. You better believe it. Yeah, I should mention that it is a one-fight lead, I believe. I believe it pulled even in the prelims and, and moved ahead by one. Thanks to my boy, Cody Nolov Garbrandt. Uh, today on the show, we're actually going to start with that UFC event in Pittsburgh. Then we'll look ahead to this weekend's show in London, England, headlined by Anderson Silva and Michael Bisping. And then in our championship rounds, we will unfortunately touch on Bellator 149. There's no way to look at the last seven days of MMA and not touch on that event as much as it was a giant dumpster fire. But let's start with the UFC. Let's start in the octagon and and start in the Steel City. We talked last week about this show obviously being ravaged by injuries, a lot of changes, not necessarily what we were expecting going going in. But for me, coming away from that show, we got kind of what we had talked about on last week's show, which was an event where guys kind of really stepped up. And and outside of a couple of fights that, you know, went the distance and maybe weren't great, there's a lot that we're talking about and a lot of positive takeaways from a show where the expectations were dialed all the way back. Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the the biggest thing coming out of that um, that card in Pittsburgh, you know, the, the main card was actually uh, quite fun to watch. I mean, you had four first-round uh, finishes, Three, um, you know, TKO finishes and a submission in the main event. Obviously, Donald Cerrone uh, getting it done against Alex Oliveira. Um, You know, it turned out to be a very exciting main card that I think, um, you know, really uh, lived up to sort of, uh, you know, expectations for people who maybe were looking for this to be a more kind of exciting card since it didn't have that big name uh, recognition in some of the fights. And I think the uh, the fighters stepped up in a big way as we were talking about last week um, so I was I was very uh, happy and impressed with the card overall um, lots of uh, interesting stuff happening and I think uh, they they did a good job with it yeah you look at that main card as you said uh, four finishes out of six fights the kickoff to that main card James Krause and Shane Campbell I thought that was a really entertaining back and forth um, James Campbell James Kraus, sorry, showing some development in terms of his aggressiveness, in terms of putting things together. 
I thought Shane Campbell still looked good. Um, there's some stuff for him to work on. He's still relatively young in his transition to MMA, especially in terms of getting the right coaching. But if you look through sort of the last eight fights, you've got six finishes. And, and for me, that's, I'm not even necessarily a guy that's dependent on finishes for, for me to think it's a good card. But when you get that kind of results, I don't care if they're the biggest names or small names, you give me entertaining fights and I'm going to be entertained. I'm going to feel like my, my time expenditure is worth it. And we got that on Sunday night. And, and I think it again shows, and people are going to say that I always want to trumpet the UFC and, and pat them on the back. But to me, it again shows that you can just sit down and you don't necessarily have to know all the fighters to get an entertaining show and to be entertained from top to bottom on a UFC card. Yeah, I mean, you know, and that's the thing for for the casual fans sort of tuning in and watching a, a card like this. You obviously don't have that uh, big name recognition. So, you know, you obviously have to bring a great product to the forefront. And I think that uh, <coughs> you know, when you think UFC, you know, it's, it's synonymous with the best in the world. And you want to see two guys that are competing at a high level. I think we saw that. Um, you know, um, for the most part on, on Sunday, it was, uh, you know, a lot of guys coming in there and having really good fights. As you were saying, even the Kraus Campbell fight was a really good fight with no finish. I mean, um, finish or no finish, if you're putting out good fights, you know, that keep people engaged, that, uh, keep people, you know, um, tuned in and, and they'll, they'll go and they'll watch that one fight and then they'll watch another one and then they'll stay through the whole event. So I think that's how you want to build it. And, um, you know, the card in Pittsburgh was uh, very much sort of reflective of that. And I think that, um, you know, it was a it was a good show overall and and uh, definitely exceeded uh, my expectations as well. So I want to work our way up sort of through the last few fights, which I think are really the pivotal ones in terms of looking forward and divisional rankings and things of that nature. Starting with the featherweight fight between Dennis Bermudez and Tetsuya Kawajiri, not the most action-packed fight. Um, a fight that sort of shows you both how good Tatsuya Kawajiri still is at 37 despite diminishing skills. I think it also shows you both the ceiling and kind of limitations of Dennis Bermudez because this felt like a fight where he was able to shut down what Kawajiri really wanted to do but still kind of made it tough on himself to eke out a 29-28 a across the board. He clearly won the fight, but there was nothing about it that really stood out. And I think that's what he needed from this performance to get back into the win column and, and really kind of make a statement in the featherweight division that continues to be one of the, the most talked about sort of active divisions in the UFC. What were your takeaways from that fight? Yeah, I think I agree with you, you know, uh, um, 100% when, you know, he said that, you know, uh, the the impress, um, the performance that, that Bermudez has wasn't overly impressive in terms of the, the fact of it not being a finish. Um, you know, when you go back to his fights against Jimmy Hetz and then, and then Clay Guida after that, um, you know, he, he was finishing those guys and, and then he took a step back in the fights with Ricardo Lamas and Jeremy Stevens. But that being said, I do think that, you know, like like you said, I mean, this was a good fight for, for Bermudez to get back in there and sort of 
um, you know, get a win over a very respected veteran in, in Kawajiri, who is, um, you know, not easy to put away either. So, and he's a tricky guy to, to deal with. He has a lot of weapons. So I think Bermudez did what he needed to do to, to earn that victory. It wasn't the most exciting way to get it done. But at the same time, this is a guy who is coming off of uh, two, you know, uh, losses where he was finished. And I think he's just trying to rebuild and, and get some wins under his belt before he, you know, starts uh, kind of, uh, you know, maybe going for those um, riskier attacks and, and trying to knock guys out or trying to submit guys. Um, I think that it was a it was a win that he needed and it was a win that, um, you know, sort of gets him back into the mix right there at featherweight. Yeah, it's a good it's a good get right win. Um I think the UFC actually needs to have more get-right fights for guys, and we'll get to one of those in the main event, because I think that's what this ultimately was for Donald Cerrone. Before we get there, obviously, we'll stop in bantamweight. Um, if Dennis Bermudez's performance was just kind of middling and, and enough to get right and get back into the win column, Cody Garbrandt's performance against Tanquino Mendez to me, was a standout performance. Gets the job done at 4 minutes, 18 seconds of the first round with a nice combination, finishing off the the late-notice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. No Love's a guy that, and we talked about it sort of last week and, and at times off the podcast as well, that we both see as having a great deal of potential in the bantamweight division. This, to me, was the kind of performance... Not just that I expected, but that you want to see from a young, hyped prospect when they get this opportunity to face a guy that's coming in on short notice, who struggles to make weight, and and you have to agree to a catch weight in the days leading up to weigh-ins. This is where you go out and really show off and, and show out for people that are watching. And I think Cody Garbrandt did that very much on Sunday night. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, full disclosure for everyone who... Uh, read the punch truck predictions. They saw I picked Augusto Mendez. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a weird uh, sort of pick for me. I mean, you know, Garbrandt. I I mentioned in the picks that he is a golden prospect and he is a guy who is going to be very important to that bantamweight division. I was um you know I was looking at the fight and thinking you know uh, Mendez might be able to sort of catch Garbrandt with something off guard on the ground. But it went the complete opposite way, really, at the end of that round. And and once he started standing with uh, with no love there, it didn't seem uh, you know uh, like there was very many things for Mendez to to offer in terms of his attack. I mean, uh, just a great performance, pieced him up on the feet, and uh, one of those fights that, like you said, you know, um, with a guy coming in on short notice, coming in on a catch weight, you know, you want to make a statement victory, and and it's not. It's not an easy fight as well, and that's that's why I had some trouble picking it because, you know, Mendez does have that, um, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu background that's, you know, very, very, you know, high level, and coming in against a guy like that, you don't know what to expect, really. So I think Garbrandt, uh, you know, he did exactly what he needed to do. and um, But to put that, you know, sort of into practice and to actually, you know, uh, put all those tools together in the octagon the way he did – uh, was very impressive to me, and I think that he's only going to continue getting better. And, and I think that uh, you know, at, at 24, um, this guy is an absolute you know um, blue chip prospect. 
Yeah, the win moves him to 3-0 and in the UFC, 8-0 and overall for his career. He talked with John Anik afterwards and said he still wants that fight with John Lineker. I don't know if this fight, this performance is going to be enough to carry him into the top 15. I mean, the UFC rankings, we've touched on them a bunch of times. You got to take them with several grains of salt. I think everybody that pays attention to this sport knows that Cody Garbrandt is absolutely, as you said, a blue chip prospect. I'm not so much worried about where he lands in the rankings so long as he continues to move forward. I do think the fight with Lineker is an interesting fight. Um, absolutely fireworks if it does happen. I personally would be more interested in seeing the UFC sort of continue to bring as many of these guys along at the same time as possible because to me it's always better to have multiple prospects moving forward. So having guys like Garbrandt and Lineker and Aljamain Sterling and Thomas Almeida and Michael McDonald all moving forward towards that upper tier as we have guys like Henan Burrell probably leaving the, the division, Uriah Faber continuing to get older, bring that next generation up rather than have them pick each other off. But at the same time, if you were to tell me that they were adding John Lineker and Cody Garbrandt mm-hmm. to UFC 198 in Curitiba, Brazil, I would be all over it. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you said there um, in terms of having these guys kind of move up and bring that sort of next wave of, of bantamweights, young bantamweights, uh, to the forefront. I like that idea a lot. Um, yeah, the thing is, is I guess, like like you were sort of saying, if if it happens with Lineker, uh, which is a fight that I, I still think could very well happen, um, I wouldn't be mad at that one bit. Right. So, um, <laughs> So it, it, it is, um, you know, an interesting position now for Garbrandt. I do think he gets, uh, you know, um, a bit of a step up in competition. But I also think it's there's no need to rush a guy like that either. I mean, he's definitely at that level where he can fight a top 10 bantamweight, I think. I think he's ready for that. That being said, you know, <clears throat> uh, I, I do think it might be in his best interest to, you know, get another fight in against, you know, Lineker or whoever who's just outside of that top 10 and maybe make another statement performance. He can make the case for, you know, um, you know, another big name down the line. And I think uh, with his skill set, he's a he's a nightmare for a lot of these guys. So uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see where they go with Garbrandt from here. It's the Keyboard Kamara podcast on Province Sports Radio. E. Spencer Kite with Patrick Sviklinski recapping UFC Fight Night Cowboy vs. Cowboy from Sunday night in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Co-main event. To me, sort of similar to the to the Cody Garbrandt fight in that Derek Brunson goes out and does the damn thing. Does exactly what he needs to do to really announce his presence as a potential <laughs> contender in the middleweight division. Gets a stoppage over Juan Carnero just past the halfway point of the opening round. Capitalizes on Jukau kind of lunging in for a big shot, slipping and hitting the canvas. Doesn't let him get back up. We talked about it on last week's show that this felt like an opportunity for Brunson to go out and have a statement performance, make a statement. Did he do enough for you to really elicit a look as a top 10 middleweight going forward? Uh, I think, yeah, I think he did. I mean, that's three straight uh, first round TKO finishes for the guy, you know, um, you know, Ed Herman, Sam Alvey, um, and now uh, Juan Canero, you know, 
it, they're not obviously, you know, the the most, uh, you know, talked about names in those divisions. But those are really tough guys that he's been finishing at at a pretty, uh, you know, ferocious rate there. And that went over Lorenz Larkin. He's six and one in the UFC with his only loss to uh, Yoel Romero, which, uh, you know, is a, is a very tough matchup. And that was, you know, over two years ago now. So um, he's been on a four fight win streak. It makes a lot of sense to give him, you know, uh, a, a name in that top 10. Um, but at the same time, you know, um, a lot of these guys are sort of tied up in that weird kind of middleweight picture. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving parts around right now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I do think that Brunson is, is definitely deserving of a top 10 guy right now at this point as it stands. And I mean, that win sort of underlined it, he came out and did exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, and I think even surprised some people because Carnero can be a tricky guy to, to, you know, match up against. So getting that finish in, in as quick as he did was very impressive to me. And I think that moving forward now, it'd be interesting to see uh, where the UFC goes with him. Um, I think an interesting matchup uh, for Brunson would be, you know, the winner of the upcoming Talos Latas and Gegard Musasi matchup. You get, you know, two guys who are kind of, at the uh, you know uh, uh, the latter end of the of the middleweight division top ten, uh, but two guys who are very you know respected veterans and two guys who are still you know very tough and trying to get you know back into their middleweight title pictures. So I think uh, a fight between Mosasi or Ledes, though the winner of that fight for Brunson would be a great stepping stone for him. Yeah, it is an interesting situation in middleweight right now. For me, I think the ideal matchup in terms of style and name value would be Michael Bisping. But you have to believe that if Michael Bisping gets through Anderson Silva this coming Saturday in London, which we will talk about a little later in the show, he's going to be on to bigger and better things, maybe even a title shot depending on how things shake out later in the year. But I agree with you with the Musasi latest call. I think that's a good fight against... An established name, an established veteran, gets Derek Brunson. Probably another co-main event assignment on a fight night card in Europe or maybe middle of a pay-per-view somewhere, something like that. I think he, along with Robert Whitaker, are the two guys to really watch for in this division going forward. Just because we have, and, and we touched on this in the past, a bunch of guys that are sort of in that question mark range where we don't know what to expect from him anymore. I mean, sure, Vitor Belfort looked good last time out, but who knows? Leota Machida has struggled as of late. Tim Kennedy, we don't know if he's coming back. And then, as we said, we have the Bisping-Silva matchup this weekend that is going to answer a lot of questions about both guys. So I think Brunson handled his side of the his side of the equation, did what he needed to do. Now it's just about sort of sitting back and waiting to see what the UFC has to offer for him going forward. Hopefully it is another step up. It is another big opportunity because as you said, three straight stoppages, four straight victories, six and one in the UFC. This is a guy that I think a lot of people agree they can continue building around going forward. Absolutely. Main event, Donald Cowboy Cerrone. I'm going to be honest. It went a lot easier and a lot quicker than I expected. I thought Alex Oliveira would be able to test Cowboy a little bit. To his credit, Donald Cerrone goes out, um, plays to his advantages, uses some wrestling, puts Cowboy Oliveira on the ground, gets the 
quick submission, a beautiful setup into that mounted triangle where he then just has to roll over to his back and it's all cinched up and, and he gets the tap right away. I'm really kind of torn coming out of this fight in terms of what it means for Cowboy and where he goes from here. As I said in, in reference to the Dennis Bermudez fight, I think this was very much a get-right opportunity for Cowboy. He goes out, gets a victory nine weeks after losing his lightweight title bid, puts himself back in the win column. I believe he's a guy that the UFC just should continue to use in this role, headlining fight nights, bulking out Fox cards, bulking up pay-per-view main cards, fighting in entertaining fights where you can really... The pressure isn't necessarily on him. And he said afterwards that he's good with 55 or 70. If anybody wants to get hurt, he knows a guy. So for you, where would you like to see him compete? Or how, I guess, would you like to see the UFC use him going forward? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting right now because he has, he has these options at, at both 170 and 155 available to him. Um, you know, the fight um, with, with Oliveira was, was kind of interesting because you know, um, in a lot of ways, you know, I did think that Oliveira was going to be a little more dangerous and, and do a little more. But, I mean, Cowboy uh, did a brilliant job of, of doing what he does best and, and kind of made it tricky now for me because, uh, you know, the, he, you know, had such a great performance that first round. And, and now I don't even know where to put him in that lightweight uh, division. You know, he got to the very top and challenged the Sanjos, and that didn't go too well. But, um I think, you know, I think we're going to see uh, Cowboy go down the route of, you know, Benson Henderson before, you know, he departed the UFC in terms of maybe taking a fight at welterweight, taking a fight at lightweight, um, you know, kind of kind of just seeing where the matchups are. But uh, I think there are definitely some some interesting matchups for Cowboy at welterweight. Uh, there's a lot of guys there who'd be entertaining and, and um, you know, in, an interesting fight for Cowboy. You know, I'm afraid that some of those guys that I'm thinking of, of a Matt Brown or or someone in that category, you know, um, very exciting fighter, you know, uh, size-wise, I don't know how how much he gives up. You know, we know Cowboy has always been a pretty, pretty tall, uh, lightweight, but not overly physically, you know, big in terms of, you know, mass, um, but it'll be interesting. I mean, I think there uh, there are some matchups in both divisions that that he could still do, and and I think, like you said, we're gonna see Cowboy sort of go into that role where where he's bulking up those pay per views, where he's also you know headlining those fight nights, and uh, it's it's gonna be entertaining fights because I think you know uh, he you know his, his title shot aspirations. You never want to you know say never say never because you know a few wins and. He could be right back to it, but you know it's it's going to be a tough sell right now. If DeSanjos, you know, remains champion, we'll see what happens with that. But then again, you got you got uh, Conor McGregor fighting DeSanjos uh, soon enough, and and we'll see what happens with that. So I think there's options right now for Cowboy, and I think that's a that's a great position to be in for him. The really good thing, as you said, is that he's he's willing to fight in two divisions that are very rich with opportunity. Lots of guys, so it's not necessarily a situation where you're potentially knocking off somebody that you need or you hope to be a real contender. You can put him into fights with guys that are in that 10 to 15 range in the welterweight rankings 
or anyone in the lightweight division and get a really good, really entertaining fight, a fight that people are going to be interested in leading up to the event, most likely is going to deliver come fight night. And I think that's going to be the the most important thing for the UFC going forward and sort of figuring this out is, is maximizing the drawing power of Donald Cerrone against guys and with guys that maybe need a little bit of time in the spotlight, that maybe haven't established themselves as a big enough name, as a real contender. I think a fight with a guy like Tarek Safadine, who's coming off a good but not great win, makes a lot of sense. I think a fight with, you know, someone like Calvin Gastelum, or even a young guy on the come up like Albert Tumanov, if we're sticking at welterweight, you throw those together, it gives those guys a chance to fight an established name like Cowboy that's going to draw big, carry a lot of the promotional load, and be able to hold a lot of that spotlight. And as I said, if you drop him back at well at lightweight, you can make fights with just about anybody. As you mentioned, sort of out of the title picture right now because Rafael Dos Anjos beat him so handily, because he's kind of been up near the top of that division and has some losses to some guys that are still hover, hovering around there in Anthony Pettis. Of course, he did beat Eddie Alvarez, who seems to be next in line, but we'll see about that. So it is a lot of options for the UFC. And as we've talked about many times on this show in the past, having options is always a good thing. Being able to pick and choose and and play some different angles and do some different things is never bad. So Cowboy gets the win. He needed to get right to erase sort of that memory of his loss to Rafael Dos Anjos. And everything feels good to me moving forward out of UFC Fight Night 83 in Pittsburgh. Leading into what we get is right away, no rest for the wicked, no real breaks. I saw basically as soon as the Pittsburgh show ended and they were off the air, Dana White sent out his It's Fight Week tweet with multiple exclamation points because we jump right back into the cage on Saturday at the O2 Arena in London. UFC Fight Night, Silva vs. Bisping. There were a lot of commercials for this on the broadcast last night. Mm. Um, you know, hyping up the return of the former champion, labeling Michael Bisping as a UFC middleweight legend, which I think is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> Nonetheless, it's a fight that Bisping has been looking for for a long time. And to me, it is a fight that holds a lot of sway on where both of these guys going forward Go going forward, sorry. And I cannot wait for Saturday to get here so we can see this because I have a lot of questions about what remains for both of these guys and I'm waiting to see what happens to get a better read on on sort of where they're going to go. What are your thoughts on this main event? Yeah, well, I, I 100% agree, you know, that I'm I'm very, very interested in seeing this fight go down, you know. Anderson Silva hasn't fought in over a year since that UFC uh, 183 fight against uh, Nick Diaz. Um, you know, had that whole situation um, that he had, and now is, is back to. to <laughs> that's a nice way of that's a nice way of putting that he tested positive for PEDs and blamed it on a mysterious vial of so, mysterious vial of something that he got from a buddy in Thailand. <laughs> Yeah, no, no need to get into all that, but yeah. uh, you know, you just uh, you just uh, did the UFC promotional version of talking about somebody <laughs> coming back off a PED suspension. You know, pretty much. But uh, 
I'm I'm just excited to see you know Anderson sort of back in the octagon. You know he's he's uh, still one of those you know legendary fighters that whenever he goes out, he could be he could be 50 years old, he could be 60 years old. I'll you know I'll still probably tune in to see Anderson Silva fight. He's you know he changed you know a lot of things, revolutionized you know the uh, striking and in ways that we haven't seen. You know uh, one of the greatest fighters of all time. Uh, probably still for my money, the greatest middleweight. And, um, you know, Michael Bisbing, uh, he's a guy who's always been knocking at the door of that title shot. And I think that, you know, he, like you said, he's always wanted this fight with Anderson. And I think that, you know, right now, if there was a time for Michael Bisbing to have a, you know, a shot at, at beating Anderson, I don't think it was during, you know, Anderson's peak when he was tearing guys apart. But I think if he has if he has any shot to sort of stand in with with Anderson Silva and and win a fight, what better opportunity than to do it in front of you know his home crowd in London, and what better opportunity to do it against you know an Anderson Silva who has been off for a little while, and um, you know some questions about how he's going to look off PEDs and and all that kind of stuff will will be into the mix. Um, Definitely. So I'm I'm just really excited to see how this fight goes down and and two guys who still are at the very, you know, top of that middleweight division, you know, can say whatever you want about, I guess, Bisbing sort of having inconsistencies. He's still one of those guys at 185 pounds that a lot of fighters in that division look to and say, I need to beat that guy to get somewhere. And Anderson Silva now is is kind of has this enigmatic aura around him still. Um, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, I mean, it does to some extent, but, uh, it, 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 you know, to see him sort of back in the octagon after everything that he's gone through is, is very interesting. And I think that it just shows that he's still motivated to fight and he still wants to fight. And that can be a dangerous position for his opponents that, you know, Anderson Silva, you know, could have walked away from the sport, could have done this and at 40 years old, you know, he's still wanting to compete and wanting to compete at this high level against a guy like Bisbing, uh, that shows a lot to me. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. I, I agree with you that it, it says something about him wanting to compete. I think it's going to be very telling when we see him in there because I wasn't overly impressed with the performance against Nick Diaz. Um, I'm one of those people that is almost not willing to forgive him for the use of, of PEDs heading into that bout. I think for me... Excuse me. I think for me, um, if he had just came out and said, listen, I broke my leg in a horrific accident. I was using some stuff to help me heal. It wasn't out of my system. It was a mistake. I think we'd probably be past it. It would still be a blemish on his otherwise impeccable record, but we would sort of move past it. Bisping has done a very good job of now labeling Anderson a permanent PED cheat. Um, so if he loses, he will continue to, to ride his, my career would be different if I didn't fight all these guys that were using all these drugs, which he has a legitimate beef about with Chael Sonnen, with Vitor Belfort, with Vanderlei Silva. It just sort of feels to me like this fight, as you said, is the perfect opportunity for Michael Bisping, who has finally won two in a row for the first time in a long time to come out, extend that to three, and earn that middleweight title shot with a victory over the former champion, 
the biggest name he has fought in his career and potentially the biggest name he has beaten in his career. I'm just not sure if he does it. And to me, that then becomes a, what the hell do you do with Michael Bisping? Because as much as he's always going to carry name value, there comes a time where he just has to take that step backwards. And you have to worry about maybe sacrificing some guys and and not sacrificing some guys against a talented but still limited fighter in a division where you're starting to build some of these guys up. So I wonder if you would maybe think twice against putting a Robert Whitaker in there with them or a Derek Brunson, who we talked about in the last segment. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we're just shy of his uh, 37th birthday. It's coming up on the on the 28th, actually. Um, so, you know, he's not getting any younger. I mean, a lot of people, you know, um, you know, know Michael Bisbing and he's a big name, but this is a fight that is going to be, you know, as, as you've been saying before, it's going to be very telling of, of what happens from here on out for Michael Bisbing. And I think this is really, I mean, you know, I don't want to, you know, sort of make it, you know, uh, you know, a do or die situation for Michael Bisbing, but in a lot of ways it kind of is, if he wants that title shot, this is a fight that he has to win, and this is a fight that will put him into that category. Um, you know, it is the biggest name of his career. If he can beat an Anderson Silva, that is, uh, you know, still hugely impressive, even after what we've seen, you know, Silva go through in the last few years with the Chris Weidman fights and, and the, the Nick Diaz fight and then the PD stuff. Um, it's still a massive, massive undertaking to to take out a guy like Anderson Silva. So um, it'll be interesting. But, you know, to, to your point as well, I mean, I, I am not sure that, you know, Michael Bisbing style, you know, very clean sort of kickboxer, good kind of stick and move guy. I don't know how that's going to hold up against Anderson Silva. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we talk about how dynamic of a striker, you know, the spider is and how his movements are, are just so – you know, otherworldly in a lot of ways, you know, to, to strike against a guy like Silva is, is a massive undertaking. And I do think that, you know, even for Bisbing, even though Bisbing's been the more active of the two fighters, I still feel like he has, you know, a bit more, you know, mileage on his tank that, you know, could potentially slow him down a bit. And I think that even if that wasn't the case, even if he didn't have, you know, uh, in, an injury problem to his eye that's sort of nagging and ongoing, even if he didn't have, you know, these these sort of things, I think Silva would still probably, uh, you know, win that fight. But it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting to see what we get out of Silva because another point to that, I think, is, you know, um, that sort of you, you touched on, you know, in the Nick Diaz fight. You know, we saw a lot a lot more of a tentative version of, of Anderson Silva, but he was coming off, you know, you know, a, a grotesque sort of, you know, injury and still getting his bearings and everything. So I think it'll be very interesting to see what kind of Anderson Silva we get, um, you know, come come fight night as well. Will we get sort of the more fluid and dynamic, you know, kind of uh, punchy out of nowhere type of Anderson Silva? Or we will, will we get something more similar to that Nick Diaz fight? Yeah. Does he have a year under his belt where he's comfortable with his leg? It's not rushing back into the cage. He's had 12 months off where he can sort of build up that strength, build up that understanding that my leg is going to hold up. I don't have to worry about 
anything with it. I can get back to being the aggressive guy. As you said, neither of us are trying to rush Michael Bisping into retirement. It just becomes a situation where, as you said, if you're going to earn the shot at a title that you've coveted for so long, this is your opportunity, dude. This is the golden moment for you to do it at home in London, main event against the former champion, a guy that is considered one of the top three fighters of all time. This is your opportunity to do it. And if you can't, you probably have to take that step backwards. As for Anderson Silva, I I honestly can see his career going in so many different ways, depending on how this fight goes and what version of, of him we get on Saturday night. I think if he wins, but looks similar to the guy that we saw against Nick Diaz, he becomes a perfect candidate for some fun fights. Maybe George St. Pierre comes back and we we finally get that much talked about fight between the two greatest fighters of that era. Um, if he goes out and starches Michael Bisping inside the first round, then you have to wonder if he's maybe going to get a, a a second shot at somebody or a shot at somebody in that top five to earn himself maybe a rematch with Chris Weidman down the road, maybe another shot at the title, depending on how that situation plays out. If he loses, I think it could very well be the end. We know, and he has spoken about his family asking him multiple times to hang it up and and him wanting to continue. But at a certain point, I think if he loses this one, it, it stretches to three years in change where he hasn't had a victory. Obviously, there's been some time off in there because of injury, because of suspension. But you start seeing that all-time great fading away and and the skills receding a little bit. So going to be very interesting to see what happens coming out of London. That is why we are talking about it. That is why we are previewing this show. It's the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. Patrick Swiglinski with me. Some other fights on this card that I'm I'm personally very interested in. We touched on the Gegard Mousasi Talislaitis fight. I don't think there's any need to go in depth too much there. A pair of middleweight veterans, as we talked about in regards to being potential opponents for Derek Brunson, pretty established, pretty solid as to where they fit in the pecking order. But the fight before that is one that I'm really interested in with Tom Breeze against Kite Nakamura. Breeze is a dude unbeaten, looked great in his two UFC performances to date. Last time we saw him, he absolutely obliterated Kahal Pendred. I've talked to Eric O'Keefe from TriStar, who does a lot of work with Breeze. He is super high on this guy, as high as he has been on any prospect coming through that gym in a long time, which to me says a lot about Tom Breeze. Is this an opportunity to you for him to really kind of have that performance similar to what Cody Garbrandt had on Sunday, where he just really shines and takes that step forward in an otherwise crowded division. Definitely. Uh, I think, you know, uh, Breeze has, has definitely looked fantastic in his, you know, two fights so far uh, in the octagon, you know, uh, both, both finishes that he's had, you know, he's only 24 years old and that Kahal Pendred fight was very impressive to me. Um, you know, he went out there and just blasted right through Cahal Pendred, who is, you know, a notoriously kind of uh, difficult grinder in the past who kind of, you know, avoids dangerous situations. But Breeze got in there and lit him up like a Christmas tree. So it was it was very impressive to me. Um, 
in in terms of this fight being sort of one of those that can move him into that category, I think you know you hit it you know hit the nail on the head. I think this is a very very similar fight, honestly, to that Garbrandt um, and Mendez fight in terms of what Nakamura brings as well. Um, this guy, you know, is a is a submission specialist as well, and and has some you know very tricky you know uh, grappling in his arsenal as well. But he can also um, you know he can also finish you on the feet. So it'll be interesting to see what he brings. You know, in, in that first fight that he had in the UFC. Um, he fought Lee Jing, Jung Lee, um, and he, um, you know, got a performance of the night for his uh, rear naked choke for that fight. And um, I think he's a guy who is a good test for for Breeze at this point because you know he is a veteran, Japanese veteran. He's fought in a lot of he's fought in a lot of fights, a lot of you know different promotions. He's um, he's been around for a while, so beating a veteran guy like that and beating him impressively. I think is going to be a, a big step forward for Breeze, and I think it, we'll we'll be hearing a lot more of him if he can get another sort of first round, you know, uh, victory here against Nakamura. Yeah, Keitaro has definitely been around for a very very long time. Picked up his first UFC win last time out, as Patrick said, in September against Li Jiang Liang. I think Tom Breeze is a guy that I think Conor McGregor has really reinvigorated the British market, the market in the United Kingdom, um, really brought a lot of attention back to the UFC, giving them a guy, and I don't mean this as any disrespect to Michael Bisping, but a champion, a guy that they can get that they can get behind as he is the absolute best, not just he is our guy. I think Tom Breeze has the potential to sort of be that second behind Conor McGregor. He's obviously not your not there yet, but when you look at what he's done so far, you look at the fact that he's 6'3", huge for the welterweight division, training with a tremendous group at TriStar, all the sort of intangibles and all the different things that you look at for a fighter as a potential champion, as somebody that can climb the ranks, I think Breeze ticks all of those boxes. I think this is a fight, again, where he can go out, get a huge win at home, ideally, and then propel on to bigger and better later in this year. It wouldn't surprise me at all if, given the opportunity, he's a top 10 fighter by the end of the year. Looking at the rest of this card, there are some, you know, it, same as we get anytime there's there's an international event, a lot of fighters from the host market and the host surrounding area on the card. So this one very heavily flavored with British and, and UK fighters. A couple of guys that really stand out for me in terms of wanting to see them. Very excited to see the Mike Wilkinson-Makwana-Amarkani fight. A little, little bit of bad blood between those two. Amarkani has moved to Ireland to train with SBG in the group there. So I want to see that kind of development. And I got a chance to talk to Dangerous Davy Grant, who's returning after two years of being injured and sidelined after losing to Chris Holdsworth in the finale of season 18 of The Ultimate Fighter. And as much as we are supposed to remain completely impartial as journalists, you cannot help but pull for this guy. Just absolutely over the moon to get the chance to return in London, finally make that first post-tough appearance. So I'm looking forward to those two fights. What are some of the not really main card or, or the not high-profile fights 
that you're looking to see in this weekend? Uh, yeah, well, I definitely, um, you know, like you said, I mean, that, that Davey Grant fight, I'm very excited to, first of all, you know, see how he does after elongated layoff. I was very hot on him when he was on the Ultimate Fighter, you know, um, a great prospect, I think, and, and that Chris Holdworth fight was uh, was, a, was a tough out for him, for sure, but um, it'll be great to see him back in the octagon. Um, I think the the fight that kind of interests me on, on that prelim card um, that uh, is between two, you know, sort of uh, lightweight vets, uh, Norman Park and Rustam uh, Habilov, um, that'll be an interesting uh, matchup. You know, two guys who are sort of trying to, you know, uh, get back into the mix in, in, in that lightweight division. And uh, two guys who uh, were, you know, very, very much talked about it at different points in their career. You know, Havilov had an opportunity. He, he fought Benson Henderson and, and Norman Park's been in there with, you know, um, some very good fighters, you know, took, took a little bit of a step back and two split decision losses, had that uh, loss to Gleason Tebow, and then Francisco Trinaldo came back uh, and won last October against uh, Reza Madadi. Um, but that's a fight that I think is is a good, uh, good matchup between two guys who are trying to, you know, uh, get back into that mix at, at lightweight. So I'm looking forward to that fight as well. Yeah, it's crazy to think how far... Rustam Habilov has fallen over these last couple of years, as you said, goes into 2014 as probably one of the more hyped guys in that lightweight division, coming off three straight wins in the UFC, a good, strong victory over Jorge Masvidal, gets that main event assignment against Ben Henderson in Albuquerque, gets beaten but looked okay, and and losing to the former champ is never that big of a deal, but then he's off for eight months goes down to Brazil, loses a split decision where he didn't look particularly good to Adriano Martins, and has now really just become, more or less, as you said, an an afterthought in this division, but a guy that not that long ago we were looking at as a potential contender, as maybe a guy that can kind of follow the path that Habib Nurmagomedov has set out. So I love that pick as a fight. I think Norman Park is a guy that, very similar to me, I've always thought of him as a, a lightweight Michael Bisping, Going to hit you with a lot of one-twos and a low kick. Not a lot of power, but he's game and he's going to stick in there. Um, obviously doesn't have the upside and sort of top 10 standing of Michael Bisping. But a tough out, and, and I like that pick as a fight that's definitely worth paying attention to. I will throw one more name out there. Arnold Allen is a 22-year-old featherweight. Took his UFC debut on, I believe, seven days notice. Uh ran around getting his medicals done, getting clearance, flew to Berlin, and scored a third-round victory submission win over Alan Omer. He has also been part of that UK contingent training at TriStar in advance of this, another guy that I think has a lot of upside in a division that is filled with guys with upside in the featherweight division. So very similar to Sunday's show, not a ton of big names, but the opportunity to get a lot of exciting results, see some good fights. And one of my favorite things about this fight and, and any UK fight or European fight, it starts at like nine in the morning. So there's nothing wrong with with getting the fights done by three or four in the afternoon and having Saturday night to go and, and do whatever it is you please, which for me will probably be falling asleep after I write about fights. <laughs> 
Moving forward and, and into our final segment of the show here on the Keyboard Kimura podcast on Province Sports Radio. As I said off the top, we would be remiss if we talked about MMA over the last seven days and did not touch upon Bellator 149 from the Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. It went down on Friday. It was hyped to the gills. It was, you know, the battle for the streets. It was the trilogy fight between the the UFC originals. And to me, it was an absolute dumpster fire. Um, the Kimbo Slice Dada 5000 fight, one of the worst that I've seen in my lifetime. Um, when I mentioned that to my wife, her reaction was, okay, but was it worse than Caleb Starnes? Um, shout out to my wife for remembering Caleb Starnes and how awful his <laughs> fight with Nate Quarry was. Um, I don't know if I would put it... I don't know if I would put it there because a guy running away and not engaging to me is worse than two dudes being absolutely exhausted three minutes in. But this was pretty bad. Did you watch it? And what are your takeaways from it? Let's start there. Uh, did I watch it? Um, <laughs> I I watched uh, a bit of it for my own morbid, you know, curiosity. Um <laughs> And I must say, I, I'm in agreement with you in, see, in, in saying that it is definitely one of the the, the worst fights that I've seen. Um, Data 5000 versus Kimbo Slice, that um, sort of uh, bizarre, you know, finish at the end where he kind of just fell over and, you know, weirdly kind of toppled over. It looked like, you know, the scene from Kill Bill where, um, you know, Uma Thurman slices through someone and then, like, five minutes later, uh, the other chick falls they down fall and apart. dies. Um, so it was it was very strange, to say the least. One of those fights that, you know, coming in, I mean, I, I wasn't expecting much, honestly. Like, obviously, you can't really expect, you know, uh, a whole lot from, you know, uh, I mean, maybe more so from Kimbo Slice. He's had some you know, experience fighting in the UFC, obviously not very successfully, but, you know, data 5,000, he's comes from a street fighting background and, you know, he's not a well-conditioned athlete. He's not a mixed martial artist. He's a street fighter, um, from Miami. Um, he, he's a tough guy. He's one of those guys that, you know, if I saw on the street, I wouldn't say anything bad to him, but I don't think he's necessarily an athlete. And that's exactly what we saw is two guys, who weren't in any like athletic um, condition coming in there and just trying to sort of fight. And then it ended really, really weirdly. And then everyone was like, Oh God, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> A couple of things to definitely touch on there. One, you know, we, as much as we're sort of ripping on this fight and, and knocking this fight, we absolutely wished out of 5,000 a speedy recovery from the health issues that he's dealing with. It was reported after the event that he needed to be resuscitated. He has been a, he was in critical condition overnight in Houston. Um, since been updated by Bellator PR that he is up and looking to be released. He's still in hospital, will be there for, I believe they said the duration of the week just to make sure everything is okay. But that, to me, speaks to part of the problem here, is that I don't know who the responsibility falls on. I think you could probably spread it out across a bunch of shoulders between 
Dada and his camp, between Bellator, between the Texas state legislation um, and licensing board, sorry, um, for allowing this fight to happen. You touched on him being a street fighter and not being a mixed martial artist. And I mean, we heard reports, Jeremy Botter of Bleach Report, saying that Dada cut 40 pounds leading into this. We talk about that being a crazy cut when Anthony Johnson, who is a trained fighter, a guy that wrestled collegiately and has experience with weight cuts, albeit doing them horribly, was losing massive amounts of weight to make welterweight. Here we have Dada, who's probably never cut weight in his life, trying to drop 40, 50 pounds to make the 265 limit. That, to me, should be the red flag that makes you go, you know what, maybe we don't do this. Maybe we just decide this isn't the right thing to do because we know Kimbo can make that weight. There are other options in terms of punching bag heavyweights that you can put him against that you're going to draw some interest. And instead, we put him in there in a fight that, you know, was was absolutely a freak show and a curiosity draw that resulted in a dude being in critical condition and, you know, potentially giving us the first death in major North American MMA for what? For great ratings? Like, yes, these are going to be awesome ratings, which speaks to a whole lot of problems in the MMA sphere and and in terms of what we're most interested in seeing. But to me, there is a whole lot of blame and a whole lot of questions to be answered by Scott Coker, by Bellator, about how long do you keep doing this? Because you've hyped this fight to the gills. It was an absolute farce of a fight. Both guys are exhausted. I've spent time talking to John McCarthy. I've taken his course. I remember he told me he would never stand a guy up for Mount. He did it in the Jeremy Horn against Frank Shamrock fight. Vowed never to do it again. He did it twice on Friday night because Kimball moved him out and couldn't do anything because he had no idea what to do, even against an exhausted Dada 5000. It just, to me, was far too much spectacle, far too much energy and effort and hype and coverage put into fights that honestly and truly mean absolutely nothing to this sport. And I would much rather, and I tweeted it on Friday night, I would love to see Bellator devote half this much energy to promoting Will Brooks, to promoting the Pitbull brothers, to promoting this weekend's fight between Marcos Galvao and Eduardo Dantas, who are two guys that are legitimate bantamweight top 15, top 20 guys, rather than commit all of this energy and all of this money and all of this effort towards two fights that fell absolutely flat, that don't represent what this sport can be, and personally to me, what Bellator could be if they wanted to be. Yeah, and I, I you know, first off, I want to, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I, I wish Dad a 5,000, you know, uh, all the best sort of moving forward. I know he, he had a very scary health issue, so we're, we're hoping, you know, he's going to be all right and, and everything's going to be all right with him, but... Like you said, I mean, th- this spectacle, it was, you know, at what cost? I mean, uh, li- like you were saying, you know, a guy ended up in the hospital over a fight, you know, that a lot of people tuned into, but it, it wasn't, you know, it-, it didn't, you know, show two professional athletes. These are guys who were sort of just coming in there 
and wanted to fight each other because they didn't like each other. I mean, if that's the route that Bellator wants to go in, I don't think it's a good route. I mean, you know, they wanted to set themselves apart from from the UFC in a lot of ways. But, you know, now bringing in a guy like Benson Henderson, and like you said, you know, they have a guy like Will Brooks sort of in the mix as well there. You know, they have a lot of great talents in that in that organization. They need to start, you know, promoting those guys and they need to start, you know, building those guys more because those guys are the real, you know, athletes who are there, they're conditioned. They know what they're doing out there. They know the techniques. They know what to do. I mean, no knock on Dada. Like I, I, I said, he's a tough guy, but he's not an athlete. He's not a guy who knows how to fight professionally. And there's a very big difference between going into a bar and getting into a fight with a guy or outside in the parking lot and fighting a dude and going into a ring where there's rules in place and there's all these, you know, different stipulations and going in there to fight a guy who has experience, who has been, you know, in that situation before to to do that is to put a guy's, you know, life in danger. And I think that's extremely irresponsible. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, Bellator or whoever, you know, whoever was specifically responsible for data going out there, you know, should really be ashamed of that fact because it, it wasn't a fight that should have happened, in my opinion, at all. The last thing I sort of want to touch on with this is is looking forward, because I think, as you said, and, and as we've talked about, there are some guys that are potential that are quality fighters in this organization there's been a lot of talk sort of in the in the wake of this event around if Bellator can't do this to draw eyes, what is their function, what is their place in the MMA sphere? And to me, it always goes back to where Scott Coker was before this and that strike force. Originally started with, yeah, some some weird fights that you didn't necessarily think were were worth drawing you in Frank Shamrock versus Caesar Gracie, Tank Abbott versus Paul Buentello, stuff like that. Um, even Nick Diaz against Frank Shamrock when Frank was sort of back and and just taking a couple of fights to end his career. But they moved forward with guys that were homegrown athletes that have since gone on, and we see the success they're having in the UFC. The Luke Rockholds, Daniel Cormier's, um, guys of that nature. And even some of the guys that now Scott Coker has in the fold in Bellator, like Josh Thompson, who did well. They tried to sign Gilbert Melendez. And I think they have the opportunity to do that again in Bellator. The part that worries me is that right after you see them do something great, like sign Benson Henderson, who we've talked about being a terrific signing for them, they go out and sign Chris Lieben, which to me is... I mean, I don't know what Chris Lieben has left. He quit on his stool last time out. And to me, that's a sign of a guy that absolutely does not have it in him to fight any longer. And yeah, maybe the last two years that he's been off has rekindled that fire, but he was just in jail. He just got out of jail not that long ago. And you're signing him and you're going to promote him. And to me, that's careless. It takes away from what you could do with some of these guys that as we've said, have potential. They're not going to be stars and names and draw ratings in the way that I'm sure this event event did. But if the only thing you're worried about is drawing ratings and drawing great returns for Spike TV, 
then I got to be out. And I wish everybody in that organization the best. But I also hope that guys like Will Brooks and Eduardo Dantas and Marcos Galval and whoever else fight out their contracts and go somewhere else where they can compete against the best, get recognized for their skill and be given the opportunity to fight in the spotlight that their performance merits rather than being relegated to the background as we continue to shine a light on a matchup between two dudes that haven't fought in a number of years and enter the cage with a combined age of 101 like we got in Friday's main event. Yeah, and and I you know I like that you know point that you made. I mean they they, they take sort of one step forward, one step back it almost seems like. It's uh, like, like three said, steps back, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, more more accurately, definitely. I mean, you know, the, they did the they did the Benson signing and then they did the Lieben signing, which, you know, made me scratch my head as well. I mean, uh, like you said, he's he's a guy who who quit on his stool, clearly did not want to be fighting, and now you're bringing him back into the fold, and you're going to have him fighting again. I mean, you know, what's to stop these guys from signing Jason Mayhem Miller to a fight, you know, just to get a big-name recognition, you know? Guys who, you know, obviously have issues in, in sort of their personal lives or whatever is going on just to make a quick buck. It's not, it's not right. I mean... You need to build talent from, you know, within, from real conditioned athletes, from guys who are the future of this sport. And that's what you need to do. Um, you know, and if it and if it's going to, you know, cost them some money to do that or, or you know, um, turn out to be an opportunity that they, you know, could have made some money by putting on this fight and then they decided to, you know, go in a different route. I think that's the right thing to do in the long haul, but you know, I'm not, you know, in the business, uh, I'm not <laughs> a business guy, but you know, in terms of having that integrity as an organization to say, listen, we're not going to go for this freak show fight. We're going to go with the fight between these two awesome athletes. I think that says a lot about your organization and, you know, in terms of, you know, fighters who are coming up, they'll look to that organization and say, well, look, you know, they're putting on freak show fights. I don't know if, if that's something that I want to be a part of in the long haul um, because that's all that they're going to be. So I think that, like you said, you know, they're at a pivotal point right now where they need to kind of figure out their identity because, uh, you know, they're running out of time. If they come out and and go this one route where they keep on putting, you know, Ken Shamrock versus Hoist Gracie 14, you know, um, in a couple of years from now, then it'll – I think progressively just get worse and worse. It'll bring in the numbers, but the whole integrity of that um, uh, organization will be compromised. And I definitely would not want to see anything like that in the future. Yeah. And they're starting to run out of options. I mean, I don't think there's a lot that they can do with Kimbo Slice going forward out of this. Um, Yes, he's still a name, but that was such a bad fight that it's going to be very hard to get people. I would hope it will be very hard to get people hyped to see him fight again. I think the Ken Shamrock, Hoist Gracie main event, let's just lay that to bed. Let's leave those two to ride off into whatever sunset they want to ride off on. Um, they still have guys like Tito Ortiz. They just got Rampage back. But again, for me, I'd really love to see them focus on even the guys that are retreads and we know like Phil Davis and N.K. Mo, who are going to fight later this year, build up the guys like Liam McGeary. But we're not Scott Coker. We don't make those decisions, so we will have to just wait and see 
what the future holds for Bellator going forward. Immediately, it is Bellator 150 this Friday from Kansas, the Kansas Star Casino, with a bantamweight title fight. What the future holds for us here on the show is an adios. As again this week, Patrick, I appreciate you jumping in, fitting me into your busy schedule with the girlfriend. Shout out to her. Happy birthday. Um, and we will be back next week. We, uh, we got all of the technical side of things figured out. So we will be doing this regularly and often. Until then, I am E. Spencer Kite. He is Patrick Sviklinski. Follow us on social media. Continue to check out the blog, Keyboard Kimura, at theprovince.com slash MMA blog. Until then, enjoy the fights this weekend, and we'll see you soon. You've been listening to Keyboard Kimura, the official mixed martial arts podcast of the province. Read the Keyboard Kimura blog on theprovince.com, follow them on Twitter at Keyboard Kimura, or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Keyboard Kimura. Kimura.